0: Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Pain, pain's a part of life. It leaves a sour taste in your mouth. You just have to learn from it. I think some people believe it's a test of your faith, but if you don't, have a faith to believe in, it kinda makes you wonder why why is there suffering in this world? Famine and death. A baby is a beautiful, wonderful thing. Why doesn't he want me to have this? I think that bad things are just the way that you see them. Thank God's in everything we do. I don't think God does these things to people. I think he has a way of getting us through it. Why would anybody want to create people who Do horrible things to each other each and every day. It doesn't make any sense. Good morning. Well, there's there's our question for the day. We're again we're working on a series that uh, about 350 churches are are going through this fall from um, Buta to I think Georgetown, and today is a tough one. If God is loving and and um, there's evil in the world, how do how do you make sense out of that? Now, it would be very easy for me. It would be easier for me. I'd rather do that actually, that to kind of give everybody a big hug, and we just have kind of a a warm embrace. About how we suffer together, I could I could scroll through some newspapers and try to prove to you that there's evil in the world. I don't know why I do that. It wouldn't be you know it wouldn't be something that you would doubt. But my point is is what I'd like to do today is is talk to you quite frankly. I'm going to come kind of hard and fast with thinking because because this issue of evil uh, is is at our door if it hasn't already invaded our world already. And if we don't think right, we can't live right. And this is the time to learn to think. It is, it's too late if you're in it already. Okay. So you have to get there prepared. This, the reason I, I, I'm taking this tact is because almost, maybe even 20 years ago, I was talking to a young man, and we were preparing a funeral for his daughter. And he, I'm rather critical of him because he's because he's in ministry. So it's keep that in mind. So he he's a minister, but he's not part of a ministry that's known for its Bible teaching. And that was extremely unfortunate. Because he because if he'd have read his Bible, he wouldn't have the values he had. Ignorance is not bliss in combat, it's dangerous. And his wife was probably blinded by grief, and so. What, whatever the case uh, that she might have for some of the reasons and choices that she had, I, I don't know. But for him, I was talking to him in that, in that hospital hallway, and we were planning this funeral, and uh, we were given this uh, poem to read at the, at the memorial service, and I said, I, I can't read this. And honestly, you should know better. It shouldn't even be brought up. This is, this is wrong, it, it, besides it not being true, what does it say about God? I think it would. I think it would shame him. But again, I mean, this 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 guy is uh, going into a cage fight for his faith, and and he's and he's never even jumped rope. And so the the poem was read, and it was it was terrible because. Uh, it was sentimental, and and again, I'm just I'm, the reason I'm critical is because the person is is in the ministry, and and, and the poem read something like, um, "God must have needed another angel, and so he called your little girl home." And I, I've I've heard that uh, half a dozen times. It was actually edited out of our prelude uh, video here because it, it just makes my skin crawl. I understand the sentimental. Uh, kind of value of it. But, but Jim, can we stop and think about that? Right. I, uh, take the romance out of it. So God needs, needs, God needs, God does not need. He doesn't need help. He's not lonely. Babies do not become angels. <laughs> And what God calls your baby home because He needs that. I mean, wh- what God does that? I mean, there's gods in the Bible like that. I understand. You 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 grab your baby and you march up a mountain and you throw them in a volcano. That is not the God of the universe. That's written about in the Bible, and uh, I, it's 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 not to it's not where our hope is appropriate. It's not where our convictions should be. And so today's lesson is, um, I'm I'm sorry for you. Today's lesson is what I wanted to say to him in the hallway of that hospital, but the surroundings were inappropriate. Okay, so we're not in a hospital now. We're not in a funeral home. And I want to tell you some things. I want to tell you the truth about this issue of the, uh, loving God and the problem of evil because I want you to learn how to think because there'll be a time when you can't think because life will spin you around and you must have something to stabilize. And it's, and it's, and it's the truths of, that we're talking about today. In other words, I want to talk to your mind and I want, I want to point you in the direction of some convictions so that when, when your heart is drunk with sorrow and grief, it is your, it is your mind that drives you home. So today, today is about thinking the right things, to having convictions of things that you don't see but are true. It is about having hope in things that you long for, that God has promised us. Now, here's, here's the outline of the problem of, of evil and, and loving God, right? This goes back to 300 BC. Epicurus said this, and then in the 1700s, David Hume took advantage of it, and then in, in the 1990s, actually, some things were added to it. So, it goes like this, you know, if, if God is loving and then there's evil, it must be because he can't do anything, you know, and so he's impotent, okay? Okay, maybe that's not it, okay? So, he's powerful, and evil takes place, so he must not care, and he's unloving. And then, and then the add-on that came later was, well, okay, we can't live that way. So he is all-powerful, and he is all-loving. He just doesn't know, and, and he's, he's a bit caught off guard, and, and, and what are we to do with this? And so my answer to, to this dilemma is just, is just the definition of God. This is just raw logic. It, it's not very attractive, but it's true. It is the definition of God. It's like the definition of anything, right? The thing is defined by these words. Like a triangle is a three-sided, right, figure. It, it has to be. If it has four sides, it's not a triangle anymore, right? It's quadrilateral, quadrilateral, right? It has to be. There's no such... Can you envision in your mind a four-sided triangle? No. How about a two-sided? No. So by definition, and here's why that's important, because God can't be anything but all-loving, all-powerful, all-knowing. That is how we define God in the very first place. If God is not all-powerful, for example, then what can you imagine in your mind? It's, it's, it's a fancy thing. It's called ontological argument, the definition of things, the source or the power, or the de, right, the definition of things. Can you imagine a God that is powerful? I mean even beyond ima- yes you can. Well that's that imagined god is probably closer to the real god of the Bible that's described than this god that it's not able to conquer evil. Evil comes and kicks sand in the face of God and we feel sorry for him but we like that better because at least he loves us he just can't do much about it. And we're all in this together hope it ends well. That 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 is not That's the God of the Bible. Then then there's this other, again, by definition, he has to be the all-powerful one. By definition, he has to be all-loving. Where do we get the definition of love if it's not God? The brilliance of God's love. Anything outside of the blinding radiance of this love is less than God, and it's not the definition of love anymore. Now, listen, especially in our country these days, we have a different definition of love, and God doesn't qualify for that. Quite often, We have this Hallmark definition of love, Hallmark cards, you know, and, and, it's, and it's kind of a feely, touchy thing, and, and he doesn't kind of mess with us. Uh, he, he, he takes care of us, and that's it. It's more like, from a Shakespearean standpoint, it's, it's a Romeo and Juliet kind of puppy love. When God's love is more life-changing, he loves us so much, he wants to make us grand everything he would expect us to be. And so he's more like a a personal trainer type love where (laughs) they tend to yell at you sometimes so that you can become more than you are right now. He's Shakespeare. He's more like the taming of the shrew kind of love that you could become a compassionate husband and a noble wife. That's the kind of love that God is. And all-knowing, of course, he has to be all-knowing. He knows not... Not all the things that are, he knows all the things that aren't. He knows every possible universe and decision in the context of every single person in every possible universe. That's what all knowing means. He's played out everything that there is. And so in summary, you have to you have to know this now and you have to know this here that God has to be he can't be any other. He has to be all-loving, all-powerful, and all-knowing. There is no such thing as God lacking any of those things. And the reason you have to know that now is because if you're in a hospital or an unemployment line or a concentration camp and those things are still up for negotiation, you will lose. But if you study the Word of God and you start believing these promises to be true, you will reconcile these issues. And, and when, when these fleeting thoughts come to your mind like, God doesn't love me like a four-sided triangle, He doesn't love me. There's no possibility of that being a, a real thing. And so it, the, the reason, again, kind of a practical Reason why that is so important? Because when you're in a hospital room or you're in a death camp, you run to God, not away from him. Because you've resolved these things in your mind and your heart tries some sort of act of rebellion and you say, stand in line. Submit to the reason and logic. Now, listen, evil is, no doubt, is the bedrock of atheism. It it is the most difficult part of believing in a loving, powerful, knowing God. Uh, The famous saying, after Auschwitz, there can be no God, right? I mean, after the, the atrocities of Auschwitz, there can be no God. And that's an interesting perspective except when you examine the people that were actually there, the, per, the people that say that were on the outside looking in. If you look, for example, the writings of Viktor Frankl, who survived Auschwitz, and his last book that he wrote was called Man's Search for Ultimate Meaning. And he wrote in that book that it is contrary to what people believe that the people of faith that entered Auschwitz deepened their faith far, far more than those that lost their faith. And he, he likened faith to like a flame. And he said, when people entered these death camps and they had their flame was nothing more than a candle, then all it took was a mild breeze of evil to extinguish it, and they left what little they had. But those who entered the camps with a flame towards God, when that same fan of evil and sorrow and torment hit them it was like a fl- a flame being hit right with a breeze and it now illuminated the camp it lit it on fire and today today here's here's what I, would, I my desire for each and every one of you that you would want a flame then when when this breeze of evil and sorrow and death And remorse comes your way. It doesn't extinguish your faith. It ignites it still the more. That's what today is about. Because this life, this existence that we have, this is the best possible world that could be created by a God that is all-knowing of all possible worlds. That's all-loving and all-powerful to create all possible universes. This is it. Okay. This is the best possible existence, or God would have made another one. This is the best possible existence of, for an all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing God to create if, if, if he were to choose to create man in his own image, and that man were free. In the image... Of God, God made man, and man is free. And God respects that freedom. This is not the way God made this planet. This is the way we adjusted this planet. And with our freedom, and God honored that freedom, with that freedom we chose to rebel against God. And in that rebellion, and every one of us are part of that, we rebel against God, and we isolate ourselves and alienate ourselves from God, our fellow man, and from creation itself. But when God made it, it, it wasn't that we had harmony with our Maker, we had harmony with each other, and we had harmony with nature. And now we're just in this turmoil because God's respect of freedom. And and here's the thing: what we want, though, when we when we wonder, you know, come on, God, let's you know get in here and help us out. What we're asking for is for God to step in, probably more like a, an invisible Superman, that that cuts us off from our choices or probably from other people's choices. And so bullets turn to butter before they hit some innocent person. And, and and if you keep doing this, physics becomes unlivable, right? I mean, the first time somebody goes into an intersection and they forget to stop or they don't check before they turn or whatever they might be, and, and there's this near collision, but suddenly Superman comes in. God... Invisible, comes in and rearranges the cars so that it all works out for the better. No one gets hurt. How's the next intersection coming? How would that affect your driving if no matter what happened, God would rescue you from your poor choices? Some of you, it wouldn't change your driving at all. You kind of blaze through the freeways as though God were going to not hold you to that. But listen, I mean, it's kind of funny to think about physics, but when it gets pretty personal, if you really want God to start intervening in our lives, He can, but He honors us by not doing that. He turned water into wine, He can turn it back. And so when you've had enough, He'll just make that water. Do you want that? Do you want your car to only go the speed limit? How about those vows that you made to your husband or your wife to love and honor and to respect. So every time that you don't love your husband or your wife, this migraine comes upon you. And when you don't give your husband or your wife the due respect they should have, as a child of God, vertigo. When you tell a lie because you think you deserve to have your cake and eat it too and get away with this, right, then you get exceptionally nauseous. See, now we're not talking about love anymore. Now we're not even talking about being human anymore. But this is the best possible world that God could create being all-knowing and all-loving and all-powerful. And he says, you guys can make a mess of it, and you guys can also clean up the mess. You have the power to do all of this if you choose to. And so if you go to, if you go to Israel go to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, there is one of the the better Holocaust museums in the whole world. And right when you walk in the door, you'll see a little model of the museum, and and inscribed there is this dialogue that takes place in one of the death camps. And somebody says, and someone says, in their skepticism, where's God in all of this? And a rabbi responds, where's man? God gave us the responsibility, and we, and we turned it into right, a massive killing. And God gives us the responsibility to stop that massive killing. What is, uh, Ed, I think his name is Edmund Burke, the famous writer of The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. What does he say? He says, to e- for evil to prevail, the only thing that is necessary is for good men to do nothing. To choose to do Nothing. And evil breaks out. So, what of suffering? We won't have much time to talk about. We talk a lot about dealing with this sort of thing at our church, and so I don't want to uh, elaborate too much on these first two points. But there's there's three things that suffering brings to us that kind of, I guess, redeems it, makes something good out of something bad. And the, the first thing is that suffering allows us to change. Most people will not change unless a certain amount of pain or suffering comes their way. And, and that's almost the definition of a human heart. It has to get so bad that you want to be different. But also, sometimes you just learn things in suffering, some an illness or uh, some tragedy that happens in your life, and you become, I guess, a, a more whole person. I, it's, you know, it's, this might be a truth that it's anything of value seems to come with labor pains. Maybe that's what happens in a world that's broken. The second thing that suffering and evil can bring to us is uh, it it brings us life. It gives us something to live for. I mean, in other words... um, there's a famous Greek saying that says a life untested is not worth living. You've heard Aristotle's uh, unexamined life is not worth living. And I, I think this was a contemporary because he said a life untested is not worth living. A life fully pampered uh, is it, who cares, <laughs> right? Okay. Just imagine this. Okay. You, we all like hobbits, don't we? Lord, or actually there's a hobbit inside of all of us. I think um, we, we want that, that life. And so can you imagine the Lord of the Rings trilogy. So that's the edited versions, three hours each. That's nine hours of Hobbits. That's do the director's cut. That's four hours each. That's 12 hours of Hobbits, but let's take out evil. So you have Hobbits living in, in their little squires and stuff, and they basically, they fly kites and they drink beer. And I think that's, that's fun, but nine hours, that's 12 hours of kites and beer. That's a lot. And it's I don't think I'm going to watch much, right? But, but wait, let's add this. You must take this cursed ring through Mordor to the fountain of doom and throw it into an extinguishing fire pit of lava. Wow. What's this saying? You know, write a book that's worth living or live a life that's worth writing about. We don't, very few of us have a chance to take a cursed ring through Mordor and throw it into the Mount Doom, but we are all like Cain living with some sin crouching at our door and its desire is to master us unless we master it. And so there's so many different expressions of courage that we have availing to us. Like going into a counselor's office? Like seeking a friend's advice? Does it have to get so bad that I'm forced to change? Or could you help me through this? Could you be God's spokesperson for him to be my personal trainer? Could you help me be less of a shrew? There's an adventure for all of us. And so, I mean, I'm I'm just acknowledging, and we've talked about it so many times that I won't spend much more time on this, but suffering can bring us a deeper expression of life. But here's what I really want to talk about. This is what I've been waiting for. Is suffering gives us the right things to hope for. Suffering and evil causes us to hope. What do you want? Let me show you how this works. What do you want? I mean, really, Want not right now in church. I'm talking about when you're laying in bed at night and you're grinding your teeth and tears are coming out of your eyes and you and you have a fist. I want to like it's like given to the angst and the bitterness and the anger in you. What do you want? You want justice, and you hope for that, and it's not happening. And suffering causes you to make a decision. Do you have faith in that thing that you long for, justice? Do you have the conviction and certainty of things that you don't see? What do you not see? You don't see justice. You see innocence violated. You see see power prostituted. You see people getting away with everything, it seems like, everywhere. And you're wondering, where is the justice? Where is God now? And if you turn to the last book of your Bible in the book of Revelation, it tells you the last things in life. And it is a book about justice. It is about the all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful, all-loving, just God and if you look at the first three chapters, it begins with the judgment of the church. And the, and the revelation to John says that the first is appropriate because, it's, because Christ says to his bride, you are given this unimaginable privilege to, to, to be the means of me explaining grace to a world gone wild and you, and you what? You squandered it on power and selfish ambition and distractions. And so the church is judged because she didn't play the, pride of, pay, play the price as the bride. And then all of creation and all the people are judged. Listen to how our friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ that have been martyred, listen to how they hope. Listen to their conviction in Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. It says, when when he opened the fifth seal, there's 21 various expressions of judgment that take place in Revelation. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony that they had maintained. I mean, all all they did was proclaim the word of God. And what are these souls demanding? It demands the next verse there that says, and then they called out in a loud voice, how long, O oh sovereign God? What? Why are they appealing to the sovereign God? Because he has power and he has a plan. And they're wondering, where is the justice? Sovereign God, who is holy and true? How long until you judge the inhabitants of this earth and avenge our blood? It's, oh, it is appropriate to long and to hope for justice. And then, and, I mean, and just, just read Revelation. It is a book of justice. Chapter 4, 14. An angel is called out, and this is all like figurative, and the people that read it at the time understood the figures of speech here. But he says, use your sharp-edged sickle, right, and, and, and come and sweep the planet and, 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 and round them up like grapes, these people that are evil, and throw them in The winepress of God's wrath, outside the city where it is mashed down and blood spills over till it is as high as a horse's bridle, for 180 miles the blood will flow. Because there'll be justice. Everyone will be judged according to their deeds. Everyone for those who do not know Christ, they go before this thing called the Great White Throne of just Judgment, and the books are opened, and people are judged according to their motives and their actions. They stand before God psychologically nude. There are no excuses, only explanations. And for those who have chosen to surrender their lives to Christ, they have a thing called the Bema seat, And that's like a report card where we use our choices. Our life, as an expression, its like a report card, and it goes before his throne, and on this table is a purifying table. It's like fire, and it cleanses all those things that we had done. And those people that lived their lives righteously and pure of heart and whose ambition was turned towards the desires of God, they give that to their king. And those who squandered their salvation and used everything that God gave them for their own petty existence have nothing. And the Bible says, and many suffered loss. But it will be fair. It will be fair. Those who are given much, much will be expected of them. And those who don't have much, it will be appropriate for them, but many of the first, they're going to be last. And many of the last, they're going to be first. It will be fair and equitable justice. And Satan will be dealt with. Look what it says in Revelations 20. And the devil who, descend, who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beasts and the false prophets had been thrown, and there he was tormented day and night forever and ever. And death, the one who always gets the last laugh, and death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire as well. Evil and sorrow and death and grief, it causes us to long for and to have hope in the things that we should have convictions for. And the conviction, the hope that we have for this final justice, the revelation to John is our hope. You should be sure of this, the things that you don't see. It seems like people get away with anything and everything. And God says, no, there is a day of reckoning. Not know that. Rest, go to bed, calm. (laughs) Do not have a blind eye to what happens on this planet. The second thing we hope for right after the justice, what else do you want? What else? Really, what do you want? You want peace. You want shalom. You want selah. You want tranquility. You hope for that in your sorrow. And the book of Revelation say, oh, that's, that's coming. <laughs> that is coming like you can't imagine. There is a new, I'll just read chapter 21, just a few verses. I'll, we'll put up the good stuff here. And then I saw the new heaven and the new earth, the first heaven and the first earth that had been passed away, they were contaminated, and was no longer any sea. I saw a holy city. It was a new Jerusalem, and it came down from heaven of God. It was prepared like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. And he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. And in verse 4, it says, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, and the old order of things have passed away. He who is seated at the throne said this, I am making everything new. Write this down, he says, for these words are trustworthy and true. He's, he is ordering us to write these words down so that in dark times of confusion and drunkenness, of grief and sorrow, we have in our minds the conviction and the certainty of these true things that peace will rule. In the Lord of the Rings, at the, kind of one of the final scenes, um, Samwise he sees Gandalf, and Gandalf was supposed to be dead, right? He gets beat by that dragon thing. And then, and then Gandalf comes back, and he says, you're, you're alive, Gandalf. And then <laughs> Samwise goes, I, I thought you were dead. Well, wait, I thought I was dead. Wait, wait. In the future, do all evil things become untrue? See how he hopes for that? And the revelation says, yes they become untrue. Set your faith on this, that there will be justice and then there will be peace. This next thing you can't imagine. It is beyond your ability to grasp and yet there's a promise anyway because God is just and he honors free choice because not only is there justice and there's peace, there are rewards. I swear, I swear to God, I can do that because look what he says. He says in um, verse 12, yeah, 22, 12. Look what it says. Look, it's in there. It's on the print right there. Behold, I am coming soon, Jesus. My reward is with me. I will give to everyone according to what he has chosen to do. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Have this as a conviction. That no one in heaven ever said about their previous life, in all of its sufferings and misunderstandings and and punishments gone unnoticed, no one ever said it wasn't worth it. The king makes a crown and places it on your head. Have faith that that's true. Now, this is deep, and it kind of summarizes this last point. It kind of summarizes not just the thing we hope for is justice and peace and, and reward. Are you crazy? Yes, there's a reward. But this other thing, you want there to be a bigger story than you can imagine. Don't you? Don't, don't. I mean, we get in this argument with God about, Why don't you do things because we think that there should be a story that's containable within my mind? Is that what you want? You you, you hope for a tale that can be summarized in a one-hour docudrama? Or do you want something spectacular that would blow your mind? The oldest book in the Bible tells us about the nature of God, that he is all-powerful, that he is all-knowing, and that he is all-loving. And and the oldest book in the Bible, because it's the first thing we should know about God, is that he is sovereign. That book is called Job. And if you know the story, it's a righteous man. By by God's uh, labeling, he's a righteous man, but, but he loses for no apparent reason, right? He loses all of his family, all of his possessions, and even his health. He desires that he would rather not be born. And for 30 chapters, he and his friend negotiate on this plan, this kind of this scheme, this plot line, where they could make sense out of this. And it gets to the point where Job himself says, I want an audience with God because I want to hear how any of this could make sense. And then God shows up. I mean, he shows up to this... Right to this, uh, you know, this this desire for this courtroom. Right, he subpoenas God. Is this what you wanted? And he says, "Sit down, Job. I have some things to ask you." And he mildly and gently just says, "Let, "Let me see. Tell me when I lose you. But where were you when?" I was spinning all things into creation and holding the oceans back and causing the cow to calf. And like we sang earlier, caused the the rose to bloom. And and all these spectacular, have I lost you? Yes, you lost me. Stop talking. No, 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 I'm just getting warmed up here. And so for three chapters, God just says, here's kind of how the universe is run. And you can't handle this. And what's great, what's fascinating about this is because, because the hope was so much greater, the story was so much greater than, than, than Job could ever ask for. He, he never gets an answer except about the greatness of God. And when God's greatness is somewhat described to him in a way that he could manage, he concludes his thoughts with this. In chapter 42, verse 2, he says, I, I, I know that you can do all things, all-powerful. And that no plan of yours can be possibly be thwarted. And no, he goes on to say, now you asked, who is it that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Who asked these silly questions? Surely I spoke of these things and did not understand. Things too wonderfully wonderful for me to know. Your plan is, I can't know it. Don't you want that? And God says, I, that's what you hope for and that's what will be availed to you. It'll take all of eternity for you to make sense out of it. Could you think of a plan? Could you think of something that could make suffering and evil and injustice make sense with there being a loving, powerful, knowing God? Would you come up with a, a storyline where God himself would disguise himself as a man and enter the evil... To be, to be misquoted and lied about, to be framed in a kangaroo court where he is beaten to death. And then all, right, all of, all of the fears that all human beings, actually all of creation has, that evil is stronger than God, as evil stands over the grave of the Christ and laughs and mocks. Is that what the plan, is that your dream? Could you think of something that, that heinous, I don't think you could. And in three days, because man can live without hope for three days. Not four, three days. The Christ is resurrected and conquers death. That's what we know of the story. And we could never fathom it without help. Here's the point. God is who he has to be. He's all everything. And this life, it is what we have. It is the best possible world with an all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful God if if He respects human freedom. What we do with that freedom is what we present to that throne. There is so much more... It's because everything's broken, but the closest we ever get to heaven is when we experience joy. And the closest heaven ever gets to us is when heaven experiences sorrow. And it's in that exchange of sorrow and joy that we feel the presence of God because we don't run from him, we run to him. And I think it's Gordon McDonald or George McDonald's that said, it is joy brings us the deepest truths, but Joy has to be experienced after sorrow. There is no better plan. There is no better story because it has to include, that's comprehensive, it has to include bravery and endurance and long-suffering and salvation and sacrifice. This is the story we're in. Now, here's the question. The flame of your faith, can it endure that evil? that is certainly coming, or will it be extinguished because it's too faint? It has to be, it has to be the conviction of these things not seen, justice, peace, reward, and a wonderful story. That's what you have your faith in. That's how to make sense um, out of suffering. I want you to sing this next song with the power of God's grace in mind in your life or maybe in the life of a loved one. We're just going to keep singing until we get it right, until we believe it. Lord Jesus, um, Lord Jesus, make us desire things that are true. Make us the desire the willingness to work for to have a conviction, to read our Bibles, to believe them to be true, to tr- practice these truths out, to get up and do it again. It is not about getting knocked down. It is about what we think the minute we come to about your goodness, about your nature. And, Lord, I'd ask that the, 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 the souls in this room would have these flames of faith that would, be, that would be fanned by evil and suffering, and they would spread the faith Cannot not be extinguished. God, I desire that we would all be that way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about grace, visit our website at grace360.org.